0: Thank you
1: shift dustians we are back to keep your ears entertained and your minds engaged between silo seasons from sting to austin butler and everything before between and beyond wool shift dust is doing dune for our season two uh there will be no spoilers of any kind during this intro episode and we'll get into exactly what the rest of the season is going to look like in just a moment but first luke we're back already How have the London archives been treating you?
0: They've been treating me well, actually. Uh, been doing a bit of mentating down in London.
1: (laughs) And uh, yeah, we're not going to get into the book just yet. That will be our next episode. But I know that you've been rereading. Uh, Last you updated me, you were at the part where the 2021 film ended. How's the rest of the reread
0: going? I actually finished it over the weekend. Okay. because I'm sure you've had the same experience. When you start Dune, you, you have to finish it. It's, yeah. not a, it's not a thing you can go and put down and come back to. It kind of has that quality that once you start, you have to finish. It almost reads itself. It does. <laughs> it does.
1: And, uh, okay, so this read, who is your least favorite character? No spoilers.
0: Least favorite character? <laughs> um, Got to be the Baron Harkonnen. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, big truly evil mustache twirling guy. Um, Yeah. Like Herbert goes out of his way to describe him in like physically grotesque terms. Well, Because
1: that's one of the most interesting like differences they've been making in most of the adaptations is they have, because he has these suspenders that help hold him up because of his massive weight. Um, But then the, adaptations have him like flying around like a maniac well the, the <laughs> worst is, one is like was the, the, not... the
0: david lynch one where like he's oh, got course. some kind yeah. of like uber acne thing going on like, yeah some sort of oh skin yeah disease, which isn't anywhere in the book
1: yeah david lynch was like how can i make this weirder and grosser
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um yeah so yeah I, I on the one hand i would want to say baron harkonnen but he's also he's like so deliciously evil like he's just one of the most loathable characters in all of literature that I almost want to say someone else. And then I don't know, it falls on like the Reverend mother, I guess, because she's just such a pardon me cunt that I just, ugh, yeah, she just stands in everyone. She's so annoying. <laughs>
0: um. So you say I've been reading it. I actually I kind of have and kind of haven't. I've been, I have read a physical copy of *Dune* many years ago. But because of the nature of what I do for a job, I really don't like I read a lot for work. So I don't really I'm not really motivated to read outside of that. So I I, I listen to a lot of audio books.
1: No, yeah, to be clear, when I say reading, I always include audiobooks in that definition. Okay. I mean, You're consuming the book. Um, because, I mean, think about, for instance, you know, uh, visually impaired, uh, you know, readers and, and just people for whatever reason, dyslexia, who knows? Yeah. a thousand the, different reasons you might want to read the audiobook.
0: The version I've got is somewhere between the book and a performance of it. Because right. what, the, way the, the way the audiobook is structured, they have different voice actors read from different characters' point of view and they also like have a, a separate voice actors like the omnipresent narrator
1: mm-hmm. where
0: it's no particular character it's not being read from a particular character's point of view and there is music and sound effects so okay. it is the book it's the full text yeah but it's also a bit an audio play a yeah. performance and just a straight reading of it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I th- I think that's that's awesome. And I, I love how like the audio options have gotten so much better in recent years. You know that it's it's gone from. You know, my friend was telling me that back in the day, a lot of the books weren't even the complete books. Like it would be like Dune abridged. Which come on,
0: <laughs> yeah, who wants to listen to an abridged version of anything? Much right, less exactly. Dune.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I don't know who the Bene Gesserit are. Moving on.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I, I'm so glad that that's gotten better. And and it's also, it's nice that you bring in that perspective of, you know, having had the audio ex- experience where I do tend to cling to like the, the word on paper or word on, uh, in this case for this, I'm, I'm rereading it on, digitally so that I can do like the searching and the, um,
0: highlighting and all that stuff to make okay. my notes. Yeah. Cause I don't so, so
1: write it, in my actual books. Does that
0: remind you of reading the OC Bible then? Cause, one of my, I think one of my favorite bits of the book is when they're describing the tiny, like, a holographic uh-huh. OC Bible. Okay, um, Like, because this is, this, I was going to say this later, but I might as well say it now. Dune occupies is a very special niche in my sort of exposure to fantasy and sci-fi, because I have no visual imagination. Mm. Like, I have a very limited visual imagination. Right. So normally I will watch the movie or the TV series first if it's a book. Because right. if you're telling me it's this massive futuristic city, you know, floating in the clouds of 30,000 feet, I can't picture that. I need somebody else to show it to me or I don't get the effect. Right? Dune is one of the very rare books where Herbert's description is so evocative that I actually can picture it in my head. Yeah. And it's also one of the few bits of media I've read before I've seen any any adaptation of it. I mean, I read it. Okay. I read it for the first time when I was fifteen, which I think is the ideal age to read *Dune*. For the first I time, think I was about away. the same age too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting because, okay, so what you're describing is aphantasia. And but I know it's, for instance, another person who has it is uh, one of my best friends here in Amsterdam, who is a, he's an animator, like his job is a visual job. But still, if you tell him, picture yourself on a beach, he's like, I just can't, I can't complete the assignment. I'm sorry. yeah And on the other hand, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I am hyper, I have hyperphantasia, which means it's you it's very vivid uh, imagination and this doesn't just apply to um to visual things but also imagining other senses too yeah so yes yeah, so, no so that's an interesting work so we're going in with with you know a couple different perspectives we've got uh the written versus audio so uh, i'm looking forward to hearing you know if you have anything to throw in as we're going through the book about uh, how certain passages were interpreted by the uh Readers, that would be interesting, and also yeah, we've got the hyperphantasia versus the aphantasia.
0: So yeah,
1: so on this reread, who's your most, who's your favorite underrated character or most underrated character for you?
0: Oh, Most underrated character,
1: uh... like for me, it's shout out Mapes. Always, I always think like she gets cut out of the interpret of the uh, yeah, that role
0: really gets minimized. Mm-hmm. Um, Stilgar. Okay. Yeah, because I think he he goes on a goes on a really interesting journey from the beginning to the end of the book, and I think that's really underplayed in all the in all the adaptations that I've seen, and even even like in the text of Dune, it's more left up to your imagination to infer how still God got from point A to point B. There's that really sad passage close to the end where Paul talks about. Looking at him and seeing a follower rather than a friend, right? um Yeah, and I, I think that that's a really interesting um that's a really interesting ju- juxtaposition because it goes to the heart of one of Frank Herbert's themes, which is to be like uber critical of charismatic leadership.
1: Yeah. So, for anyone who's wondering, that's the, the character is played by Javier Bardem, uh, the leader of the Fremen. Uh, obviously, no spoilers. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, yeah. No, that's fair. And uh, shout out Mapes of whom I was speaking is also a Fremen actually. Uh, so it's interesting. We both chose Fremen, but she is a housekeeper in the um, the household of the main character and ends up playing an important role. Yeah, no, I can't wait to talk about that. And um, yeah, we're going to be getting into all that in our next episode in two weeks where we'll recap and analyze the entire first book this time with both of us having read it. And yeah, so Dune. It was a book given to both of us by our parents when we were fairly young. I got it from my mom, and you got
0: it from your dad, right? Well, I got it from I got it from both of my parents. Okay. Um, I were we were we were visiting my aunt in Australia, so that's like a twenty four hour flight from the UK. Mm-hmm. So basically, I got given this. I got given this by my parents to say, so look, basically, basically that this will keep you occupied for the length of the plane journey, and it did. Um and yeah, it was just a re- it was just a really formative book because like so much of what is in Dune, bits and pieces of it feed through into other media. Oh, absolutely! And you know, Dune Dune isn't for well, all the times it's been adapted. It was first released in like 1965, so a lot yeah. of what we think of as sci-fi tropes get their start in in Dune. And also just the... I mean, it was really interesting. The first time I read it, the character I identified most with was Paul. Of course. Of course. But you read it as you get older and the character I most identified now with is probably Duke Leto. Hmm. So I wonder whether that's just a function of age or perspective or what. But I just remember being completely blown away by it. Yeah, I'd, ne- I'd never read anything quite like it because obviously there's the politics of it, which I think is is why my parents thought I'd like it. But there's okay. the there's the mysticism of it, and there's just the quality of it that sucks you in to this world and these people, and just the vast scale of it. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these, all of these people, all of these, all of this history, all of this, um, all of this philosophy. And just the precision of Herbert's writing. Like I say, even for somebody like me with very limited visual imagination, I can picture Dune because the writing and the description is so detailed mm. and so evocative. And also, it, it talks about things that I find easier to imagine. So, a lot of it sounds, smell, right. touch. A lot of it isn't, a lot of what you're being asked to imagine isn't necessarily visual which I think helps.
1: Yeah. And so the book was your first exposure then before like the Lynch movie or yeah. anything else? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I don't remember when I first read it. I was definitely a teenager. Um, I don't know how many times I've read it. Um, The follow-up novels, I've only read once all the way through, twice for the second and third books. And I haven't read the books by Frank Herbert's son at all Uh, that my mom has. Uh, I plan on changing that after this, I think. But yeah, I don't know. They, I also agree that it's it's changed. Where maybe the first time I read it, I was more looking through Paul's eyes, and now I'm more looking through Lady Jessica's eyes.
0: Yeah, so. I think I think it is something that I think it is a book that you get more out of if you read it as a teenager for the for the first time, because I think there is something. It's the first piece of media I ever came across that really subverted the idea of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. you know this journey that paul is on but he has no control over it he doesn't want to go on this particular journey he doesn't want to be
1: i mean he embraces
0: it he embraces it in the end yeah but
1: yeah it's it's uh we won't get too much into how but it subverts the hero's journey trope in ways yeah yeah Um, Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know who Herbert is or doesn't know that Dune was the start of an entire series, much less that it was continued by his son after his death, don't worry. We'll be getting into all that in a moment. Um, This episode, which should be shorter by Wool Shift Dust standards anyway, um, it's all about setting the stage for the whole Dune story. Where did it start and how did it become one of, if not the most famous and influential science fiction stories ever told? It's at least often cited as the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. And yeah, as we talk through the timeline today, we'll touch on uh, the topics we'll be covering in future episodes. The Khodorovsky adaptation that never was, but was supposed to give you the experience of a hallucinogenic. uh, The trippy 1984 Lynch adaptation that actually did happen, and how that spurred the Dune series to real fame and spawned some video games too and uh yeah the underrated sci-fi adaptation from 2000 the only one that includes some of the book's most iconic scenes and i know luke's especially excited i see him laughing already (laughs) and of course the villeneuve adaptations past present and future not to mention doom messiah the second book on which villeneuve's third film will be based uh luke of all of these, which are you most excited to talk about and why is it the sci-fi one?
0: <laughs> well, I'm i I'm I'm just excited for the sci-fi one because I've only watched that once. I only watched mm-hmm. that when it came out. And Same, I, just actually. Have, I just have very odd memories of it. And I, I want to see if like my imagination is filled in gaps or it really was that uh, it really was that strange. Um the one I'm actually looking forward to most is talking about the 84 Lynch adaptation. Okay. Because My first um, exposure to Dune was the book, but my dad's was the movie. And my dad loves that movie. Like, every time we've changed formats, we've got VHS, we've got DVD, we've got Blu-ray. It's like, every every time I'm home, it will either be, do you want to put Interstellar on? Or do you want to put Dune on? (laughs) It will be one of those two films. My dad absolutely adores that film. So I've seen that. Yeah. I've probably seen that in like three figures. I can quote yeah. large sections of that film from memory.
1: Yeah, my mom's a big fan too. Maybe not as like uh, to the detriment of all other sci-fi is that, but yeah, that's definitely what's her entryway drug uh, that got her on the books and everything
0: else. Yeah. yeah. No, dad, it's either Interstellar or Dune. One <laughs> yeah. of the other take
1: you pick. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm kind of excited to get into the adaptations that we haven't that haven't gotten as much attention, uh, but especially like juxtaposing them all together. I think, yeah, they're all wonderfully weird, but in vastly different ways. So each is like, each is undeniably adapting the same story, but from a different angle. And like the visual creativity, these books have inspired. is just really fascinating how it goes in all all different directions. So I'm especially excited to take a closer look at the different choices each director has made in the adaptations, uh, which ones worked, which ones didn't, and why, and what can we learn from these that we can use to evaluate other adaptations of other stories. Um, Yeah, we're definitely going to be relishing in all the delightful weirdness, too. For each episode, I'm going to ask Luke and I and listeners at home to rank a top three as they read or watch each entry we're covering. So I'll be gathering that feedback so we can analyze it together and uh, figure out what we're responding to as a community. So stay tuned until the end of the episode for the first top three question. And quick housekeeping note, uh, we have, of course, heard the rumors that Warner Brothers is considering moving the release date of any and all of their upcoming films, including Dune Part 2, due to the ongoing writer and actor strikes. We're going to continue as planned for now. And if a date change is announced, we'll shift the later episodes of this series accordingly. But... I personally think Dune is the film where Warner Brothers is least likely to move because they've already done so much promotion and it being Dune with that cast, it kind of promotes itself. Uh, mostly, I don't think they'll want to move it out of that prime awards window sweet spot as it's expected to be a powerful contender at the Oscars. Um, between Dune and Barbie, the WB could have a very good year, even if they move the color purple on the rest of the slate. So moving this film... Yeah, it would also show bad faith that the studios aren't interested in negotiating. Not that that's going to necessarily stop anyone. But yeah, on that note, we just want to say that when we get into the new adaptations, we're here to promote the work of the creatives, the actors, the crew involved, based on the guidelines provided by the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And uh, we believe it's important to highlight who it is that really makes our entertainment and demonstrate why they deserve to earn a fair wage for what they bring into the world and why their genius cannot be replicated or replaced by the next studio exec's cost-cutting measure, AI, or otherwise. Uh, Luke, is there anything you want to add to that?
0: No, I agree with all of that. I did want to ask you one question in this in this introductory episode, Alicia, which is: Do you think any of the adaptations that have been released so far actually are actually live up to the book?
1: Yeah, I was I was actually discussing kind of discussing this with a friend earlier and I was saying, you know, I think this is one of those cases where collectively together they get there. You know, each one has different pieces that they need, you know. And but ni- none of them on
0: their own. No. Yeah, I would agree with that, but I'd also say that I think the I think the the urge to adapt Dune as a movie or as a or as a mini series is wrong. It needs to be. It, it needs to be at least a yeah. HBO, HBO or Apple need to pick this up and do like a ten episode, at yeah, least the a last ten of episode. Doom. Yeah, um, adaptation universe to, to do to do it properly. In my, in my no. opinion,
1: no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I know that was exactly my feeling with the Villeneuve film. And also, I I'm, and I did find out like a lot of the things I was upset about them cutting apparently were originally in the plan. And then they just cut for time because, they, because a lot of the coolest things in the novel are those scenes with the subtle politics and, you know, learning about the world. And um, yeah, I, I mean a lot of filmmakers aren't sure how to translate that.
0: Because the, the thing I always compare it to is Viva Vendetta. Okay. I don't know if you've ever read the the graphic novel for V for Vendetta. I have not. But there's a lot more. There's a lot more stuff in there that builds out the world. So there's stuff. Of, there's a lot more stuff about uh, Chancellor Sutler's background. There's this whole thing about this artificial intelligence they've created to spy on people. None of that makes it into the movie. But at its heart, V for Vendetta is actually quite a simple story. You can actually prune all of that stuff and keep the bits of the story that really matter. Whereas Dune, I always feel if you take any part out of it, yeah. you're weakening the whole. It's like playing Jessa.
1: It's genre. so intricu- yeah. intricately woven. Yeah. yeah, it's true. All right. Well, we're going to get into what Dune is, where it came from, and who the fuck Frank Herbert is uh, right after this quick commercial break. Receive
0: the wisdom of Princess Irulan's writings.
1: Psst. Editorial note for anyone who doesn't know. Princess Irulan is the character who will be played by Florence Pugh in Dune Part 2. Uh, we'll talk about her a bit later this episode, and a whole lot more in the weeks to come. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled podcasting. So, Luke, uh, how much do you know about Herbert and the Dune backstory?
0: I know a little bit about Frank Herbert. I know he, was, he did a lot of things. He was a journalist. He right. was a speechwriter for a Republican senator. Yeah. He was a hydro- He was a hydrographer, uh, which makes a big difference to the story. So this was a guy mm-hmm. that went into the desert looking for water, particularly the deserts of the Western United States.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, as it was as a journalist that he discovered the Oregonian Dunes. He was sent to write a story about some oh, encroaching I, I European crabgrass. Yeah.
0: Okay. So yeah. So I didn't realize that he'd done that as a journalist. He allegedly enjoyed the occasional dalliance with uh, magic mushrooms, which right. I think fr- you'd probably pick up in the book in I mean, various what's, ways, what's the, what's allegedly. space, yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that um, the sort of inspiration for Dune is drawn from a lot of places, but one of the, a couple of the key texts are histories of um, the Russian conquest. Of the Caucasus in the nineteenth in the nineteenth century. Okay. Oh, that's a new one for me. He also uh, he also leans quite heavily on like various sort of explorer books. I think we read Wilfred Wolf- Thessinger's book, which is a travel log about walking through the Arabian Desert. Okay. And there's as we did some research ahead of this podcast. Obviously, there is a lot of Arabic influence in Dune. Some, some Bedouin. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of Arabic language. Um picked up, but there's also there's also bits of Hebrew, bits of Turkish, Dutch um, even. Bit, yeah. yeah, bits of Berber.
1: I mean, he he really drew from all over the place, but uh, yeah. of course, yeah, a lot of it is desert cultures because yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, people always talk about it being the the Arabian desert, but I've always thought of it as the Sahel, which is like the the southern the southern rim of the Sahara desert. Uh, basically, because in like the, the harshest parts of the Arabian Desert, people don't actually live there permanently. People pass through it. But mm-hmm. there's not enough water to actually sustain life. Whereas the Sahel, always to me, strikes as closer to what Arrakis is. Because right. actually there are settled communities. You do yeah. have to be very careful about water and moisture. But there actually are permanent settled communities communities
1: in that desert i mean it's not that the fremen don't move around but yeah, I, yeah but I they're mean, not a
0: nomad they're not a nomadic mm-hmm.
1: people though yeah despite the fact that it's based on the dunes from oregon that um that herbert was assigned to write a story about um i've i haven't been there myself but i've seen pictures and uh, yeah i have to say that uh, the depictions indeed and in my headcanon um have the sand planet arrakis looking a lot more like the sahara for sure. Uh, But the story of Dune or the Dune Chronicles, which started with the first book simply called Dune, published in 1965, as you said, Luke, is a creation of Frank Herbert, and he was born in 1920, raised in rural Washington state and moved one state down to live with his aunt and uncle in Oregon at the age of 17. Um, He was known for his sharp mind, having become an avid reader at a young age, and he was an extrovert, making friends easily. Um. But I do have to wonder if this moving in with relatives in high school had any influence on the way Paul Atreides, the main character of Dune, seems to be more at ease with like uncle-like figures like Duncan Idaho than his own parents in the first half of the book. What do you think?
0: Yeah, maybe. I hadn't considered that. Although actually, I do think think he actually is quite at ease with his mother and father, given the sort of social system and the politics of it.
1: Um, given that they're aristocrats. Yeah, and, given you know, that they're, they're aristocrats. rigid social structure. Yeah. yeah. I think that has a lot to do with his mother's ease. And yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that, obviously, next week. But yeah. But anyway, yeah. But Frank Herbert, he started his writing career at local newspapers, married in 1941, had a daughter the next year, Penny, who passed away last year at the age of 80. And he got divorced a year later. Um, And in between, in 42, he served as a Navy photographer and came home with a head injury. Uh, In Oregon, he went back to newspaper work, studied fiction at the University of Washington, where in 1946, he met and married fellow writer Beverly Ann Stewart, mother of the younger Bruce, who sadly passed away in 1993, and the elder Brian, who continued his father's series after Frank's death at the age of 65, And, yeah, Brian and his co-writer added more than a dozen books to the six millennia-hopping opuses published by Frank before his death. Um, At age 76, Brian Herbert is still going strong and plans to release his next Dune novel this fall. Now, have you read any of uh, Brian's novels?
0: No, I haven't, actually. I've only read Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. Okay, okay.
1: Well, season two of the Wool Shift Dust here on the public feed will cover the first two books, Dune and eventually in November, Dune Heretic, and uh, all of the adaptations thereof. Because, in fact, these are the only two books in the Dune series anyone has ever attempted to adapt, along with the third book, Children of Dune, which is combined with Dune Heretic for the Children of Dune sci-fi series, which will be the last thing we cover this season. Um, If you're curious why no one has attempted to adapt beyond that point, just how wild this story gets in its telling of future humanity through thousands of years of intergalactic war and evolution and devolution and back again, uh, there will be a book club to keep the story going, but that's months away, uh, so I'll talk more about that then. For now, we're going to start with a book that started it all, the best-known bit of the story. Uh, Luke, you you said your dad got into the movie first?
0: Yeah. I don't think my dad has ever read the book. Okay um what about yeah no he's a he's an enormous fan of that 1984 lynch and what about your mom and brother um my mom my mom is not into any kind of sci-fi and fantasy and uh Nathan Nathan will watch it because um when we were teenagers we basically had no choice but to watch it at least a couple of times but um yeah I think he was more confused by it than Hmm. anything else he hasn't, um, he, to, to my knowledge, he hasn't read the
1: book. So your parents gave it to you thinking, oh, this is up your alley, but they hadn't
0: read it themselves. No, they'd seen the, they'd seen the film and they'd okay. seen sort of the, the politics and the plotting of it. And they knew I liked science fiction. So they thought this would be, and also I think again, because I had a lot of time to kill the fact that it was a doorstopper of a book yeah. probably played some role in their choice. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh yeah my my mom definitely fell in love with the Lynch film first. Um it got her to run out and read all the books and yeah push the books on everyone she knew like like I did with Silo. Um so that included my dad and later when I was a teenager me. And I don't remember whether I watched the Lynch film or read the book or played
0: the computer game first. Oh, I spent so many hours playing that computer game. I mean, yeah,
1: there's actually a few, but I think both of us are probably talking about the 92 adventure strategy game. Yes.
0: Yeah. So many hours.
1: Yeah, I was into all three very much in the 90s. Yeah. And I don't remember which came first. They were all interwoven together. Um, Yeah, I think what I personally responded to in this book when I first read it is the world building. So this is a world made by a man who knows many things in detail and can combine them in fantastical new ways to create a framework to think about human psychology, ecology, religion, politics, the meaning and structure of power. Yeah, Herbert he never graduated from university, but he he was what we would call an autodidact, meaning he was like self-taught in all these areas through so his reading. And yeah, I'm not a libertarian like Herbert was, but we are both idealists. and. The subversive way that he approached his science fiction world, like taking the natives' perspective rather than the colonial perspective, I think that's one of the things that really sets him apart from the classic science fiction authors before him. And it definitely heavily influenced the
0: authors who came after him. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of similar, but I also I like the I like the idea of like the inevitability the inevitability of it all. Mm. I think Dune says something quite profound about how history is actually made. In that, human beings don't actually make history; they are they are trapped by the choices that came before them, and the they cards on the wheel, yeah, yeah, and they will trap people who came after them. And I think the I think Dune gets that across beautifully because, like, Dune makes it clear that the that its characters, all of its characters. Even the even the lead character, even the character with quasi-superpowers, only has very limited choices that he can make. Mm-hmm. Um he's trapped by what came before him and what comes after him. And I just I don't know whether it was just because um as a somewhat do a teenager, that kind of a, that kind of appealed to me, this right. idea. Tell it's the know. um it's sort of the line from Battlestar Galactica. All of this has happened before, and will happen again.
1: Right, oh, and yeah. I just carry the wheel like, of time, by the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just, I just thought that was really interesting, and I love the way it subverted your expectations of what a hero is supposed to be and who a hero is. And like you say, Herbert is a libertarian. He has a very dim view of any kind of power structure, right? But also, I think he has quite a dim view of human nature in in general in some ways it is it is quite a doer depressing book In that nobody (laughs) really comes out of it that well yeah
1: we're coming off the back of silo so you know whatever yeah (laughs)
0: yeah um yeah
1: i mean but for all that it's also just a story about heartbreak and revenge and falling in love and leading a people and yeah war yeah
0: it's, it's all of that stuff that really appeals to you when, when you're 15. Well,
1: yeah, it's it's like the essence of humanity.
0: And like when you read it as an older person, you find stuff in there that you missed. There's new layers, yeah. Yeah, there's new layers to yeah. it.
1: Well, yeah, Herbert started researching Dune, which was his third novel in 1959, uh, just in time for him to turn 40. And he'd apparently been assigned to write an article about those Oregonian sand dunes. The article was never published. But that research became something much bigger with Herbert going down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, researching desert cultures before there was even a Wikipedia. And yet yeah, there may or may not have been magic mushrooms involved. Yeah. Um, and after his wife returned to work in advertising the next year, she supported him as he devoted himself full time to the novel. And in 1963 and 1965, the novel was published in two parts, serialized into eight installments each in Analog Science Fiction Magazine. And uh, when he tried to get the entire novel published traditionally, though, it was rejected no fewer than 20 times. For one thing, it was extremely long for a science fiction novel in the 60s. And, And then, yeah, Wikipedia summarizes next in a single tidy paragraph quite nicely what happens after that. So to quote the Frank Herbert article there, Sterling E. Lanier, an editor of a Kilton book company known mainly for its auto repair manuals, had read Dune serials and offered a $7,500 advance plus future royalties for the rights to publish them as a hardcover book. Herbert rewrote much of his text. Dune was soon a critical success. It won the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1965 and shared the Hugo Award in 1966 with and Call Me Conrad by Roger Zelezny. Uh For anyone who doesn't know the Hugo and Debula, uh, they're like the Oscars and Golden Globes of the science fiction writing world, and Zalesny is one of like the greatest science
0: fiction writers of all time. So,
1: yeah, Luke, did any of that surprise you?
0: Um, no, I, I sort of done my own research uh, ahead of the podcast, so I think you picked up on all the stuff um, that okay. I did.
1: Um, Yeah. And and then after publication, Dune was a respectable size success, helping Herbert at least get other work in journalism, education, photography. And he even worked in Vietnam and Pakistan as a social and ecological consultant for a while. Uh, But by the end of 73, his novel Dune, the 1969 sequel Dune Messiah and his other work had earned him enough to not only become a full time author, but also buy a second home in Hawaii. And he did also write a bunch of non-Dune science fiction books, by the way. Uh, Most were bestsellers, but I I haven't read any of them yet. Uh, I might have to change that. What about you, Luke?
0: No, I haven't read anything that's not Dune-related from Friday. But
1: But yeah, he's, of course, most famously uh, associated with Dune. And he published the third novel, Children of Dune, in 1976. Uh, during the 70s, a cult filmmaker named Chodorowski tried to develop an adaptation to the first novel with art from Mobius and Geiger or Geiger, um, the latter of which would most iconically go on to be used in the alien films. And yeah, this adaptation was going to be 14 hours long and star his own son, plus Orson Wells, Salvador Dali, yes, he of the Melting Clock paintings, a young Mick Jagger. And so many more. And yeah, the whole production was just going to be too big. And what it, they had Pink Floyd was supposed to do the uh, soundtrack. It was just- yeah, the,
0: this this production kind of lost all touch with reality, basically.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so no surprise, it got cancelled. <laughs> but yeah, you can bet we're dedicating an entire episode to this one with the jaw-dropping documentary that covers it all, all the crazy details. Uh, have you seen the doc yet, Luke?
0: No, but it's one of the'm really it's one of the reasons I'm glad we're doing this podcast because it will finally give me the nudge I need <laughs> to dig that documentary out because it's been on my to watch list forever, yeah. um because yeah the the story of the Hodorovsky um adaptation just sounds so nuts, everything I've heard about it uh I just I can't I can't wait to get into that yeah I
1: mean the doc is a good movie in and of itself in its own right I'm I'm excited to revisit it because uh, I definitely am forgetting some of the details and it's also Hodoroski you know he's he's interviewed himself and he's such a character a Spanish guy and oh it's just yeah it's a it's a good film it's gonna be a fun one to talk about
0: and just to go back to just to go back to Hans Giga, apparently because um, there's a really good alien documentary on the making of Alien. Mm -hmm. that I watched a little while back. Apparently Giger actually showed the storyboards that he'd written, that he'd drawn for Dune to Ridley Scott. Um, And that was part of
1: Yeah, well, Ridley Scott was going to, uh, he was going to do his own adaptation and ended up doing um, Blade Runner instead.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'd actually really like to see a Ridley Scott adaptation of Dune. He'd certainly get the visual metier of it right.
1: Uh Yeah. Um, so yeah, so then, um, Herbert's fourth Dune novel, God Emperor of Dune, a.k.a. the book where things really start to get wild, was (laughs) released in 1981, uh, Heretics of Dune in 84, the same year Lynch's movie came out, and also the year Herbert's wife passed away after a long illness, so it was one hell of a roller coaster year for him. Uh, the movie was a critical and commercial success in Europe and Asia, though less warmly received in the U.S. at first. But obviously, there were a lot of Americans who felt the way my mom and your dad did about it. Because even before this podcast series, I'm going to bet that pretty much everyone listening has at least heard of this 40-year-old movie, if not already seen it yourself. Um, So I think that's a pretty good mark of success.
0: If you haven't, go and watch it. because. You'll enjoy it. It may not be, you may not enjoy it for the most highbrow of reasons, but it's, it's a trip. It's a fun, it's a fun ride. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll, we'll be watching it together in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Frank Herbert's final Dune book was Chapter House Dune published a year later in 1985, which is the same year he remarried to a former publisher. And he'd planned a seventh and final novel for the series, but he passed away in 1986 before he could complete it from complications related to a surgery for pancreatic cancer. More than a decade later, his son Brian, with the help of writer Kevin J. Anderson, would pick the series back up with, amongst others, two final books to complete the original series based on his father's notes for that planned seventh novel. Uh, Those were Hunters of Dune, and San of Doom, published in 2006 and 2007. But Brian had several thousand pages of his father's notes to pull from, so they've written a bunch more Doom books besides that, set during the original series, just before it, and 10,000 years earlier, during the Butler and Jihad. Um, now, these books are still being published to this day. Um, does talking about Frank Herbert's life change anything about how you interpret the novel, Luke?
0: I do think Herbert's politics are interesting because, like, in researching for this episode, I came across, like, several articles arguing that Dune is a problematic book mm. in that it's, you could say orientalize like, you can make an argument that it orientalizes the Fremen, you know, it treats them as, like, exotic exotic others that are waiting for a saviour from outside.
1: I mean, but I disagree because you look through their eyes more than any other culture in the books.
0: Yeah, I dis and also I think there's the um there's a couple of scenes that are deliberately written to make you think about how everybody from outside Dune is is complicit in what is going on. I think the I think the interesting thing is Dune is very open to interpretation in its politics. Uh, I think Herbert had a very clear sense of what he wanted to communicate, but I think a lot of other people have picked up other themes that maybe Herbert wasn't keen on stressing or didn't fully consciously realise were in there, or it's kind of death of the author type situation. It's one of those texts that's really dense and you can read a lot into it, and I think it is one of those books that you, you take out what you bring to it in a lot of ways in terms of your own prejudices and your own worldview?
1: I mean, yeah, I think that that can be said about a lot of things. You can interpret it your own way. Um, We'll definitely be talking about some of the more controversial aspects of the novel and also what Frank Herbert has stated or what we can infer based on what he has said was his original intention with different aspects of it. Um, But it is also one of those ones where... You can tell he wrote the first book and then he had some thoughts about it. And the second book kind of answers to the first book. So I look forward to we're not going to get to that until after we cover the first Villeneuve, actually the first two Villeneuve movies, because the third movie is going to be based on that second book. But it just yeah, it's interesting. The more books he added, the more layers he adds to. to yeah.
0: yeah. And I mean, I haven't read God Emperor of Dune. Cause I've read like synopses of it and I've just read the synopses and thought, no, it's wild. No, I, I am not. <laughs> I, I am not ready to handle that.
1: Well, yeah, we won't be doing that one in the public podcast, but, uh, in a Dune book club. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be a fun one, <laughs> but that's a while away. Um, but yeah, but even the first couple books, which are by far the most contained and accessible, they've been deemed quote unquote unfilmable. Uh, though. Yeah. At least CGI is helping with the sandworms. so, just wait until you see what the sandworms looks like in the two thousand adaptation. Um, but yeah, there is a huge cast of characters, a number of interconnected subplots, entire ecosystems and cultures uh, being brought to life, and yeah, hence all the different takes in the adaptations. Uh, I would say variety is a spice of life, but in Dune, the spice melange is a spice of life, and precognition and
0: space travel, and also that there's one. There's one particular character that is very difficult to adapt, and that is the the Princess Errolon, because uh-huh. she's not actually in the book, but she provides these little these little epigraph to all the to all well, the. That's gonna be an book. interesting
1: one to see how the different. It's interesting to see how the different adaptations uh, handle that. You know, for instance, in the Villeneuve, how they had instead uh, Chani do those opening you know monologues. Yeah so we'll definitely be talking because she does become um much she becomes an important character we won't spoil anything but she's important yeah yeah and yeah Hodorowski's doom was by the way actually the second attempt to adapt the novel and uh after that the baton passed ridley scott as i said who abandoned the project for blade runner at which point dune landed in lynch's lap for what might be the most memorable and at least and maybe least faithful of the adaptations that made it to the screen. Uh, Aside from games, the sci-fi adaptation was the next one to tackle the series with Dune in 2000 and Children of Dune in 2003. Uh, They are the least known of the adaptations, but two of sci-fi's biggest releases from that heyday era that included Farscape and Battlestar Galactica.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but Children of Dune has baby James McAvoy Mm -hmm. in it, doesn't Mm it? Yeah, it has Baby James McAvoy. It's, it's. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Like
1: the, you know, the the costumes are funny. The uh, special (laughs) effects are even funnier. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, Yeah. And after that, there was a failed attempt to for Paramount to adapt a movie between 2008 and 2011. And yeah, Brian Herbert and writing partner Kevin J. Anderson were signed on as advisors. And then finally, the adaptation that frankly brings us here today, Villeneuve's three-part take on the first two novels in Herbert's series. Now, later in the series, we'll revisit the film from 2021, which roughly covers the first half of the novel, a film many Doom fans, including myself, have ambivalent feelings about. But yeah, man, does it personally, for me at least, nail the look of the universe.
0: Yeah, I've, I, I, I'd I say I'm ambivalent about it. I'm going to wait to pass judgment till I've seen the second film because it kind of feels unfair to judge it at the halfway Yeah, I point. just know
1: what I'm missing from the first half and then I hear that a lot of these scenes actually were planned and then were taken out and I'm like, ah. But <laughs> there's a lot of things yeah. that it did exceptionally well, better than all the other adaptations. So,
0: Yeah, I have to say, one thing I do like about Villeneuve's Dune is the casting. Because like Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides and um Josh Brolin, particularly as Gurney Halleck, they just are those characters. And I think those two in particular are really good bits yeah. of casting. As is Tim as is Timothy. Yeah, no, I think
1: overall I think all of the casting has been good. Um I not all of the characterization landed for me hundred percent. Um yeah, uh, we'll get into it um <laughs> we'll get into it so yeah. i recently did um an episode of properly howard which is a, a podcast one of the affiliates in the Lorehounds hounds network like us we did a uh, dune episode on the 2021 so i ended up watching the 84 and the 2021 preparation for that and also just thinking prepping for this series that we're doing now and i was surprised that the 84 uh, movie also cut some things that i had For some reason, convinced myself it hadn't. Although I know that there is also a longer version, so I'm definitely going to be diving into and comparing the two versions when we get to that one.
0: Yeah, and I mean, David Lynch was not happy with was famously not happy with the final cut. Right, he wouldn't even use his own name. I mean, David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch actually wanted his name taken off of that film because he was so unhappy with the way it was cut. And it's it's weird, it like you changed the whole trajectory of David Lynch's career because he's never done a big budget movie since, never wanted to do a big budget yeah. movie. Well, I can't blame uh, him since and he's he's talked about this at length. He didn't like the amount of control that the studio with that kind of budget, he didn't like the amount of control that the studio insisted on exercising. Yeah. Um, So it completely changed the trajectory of his career.
1: We're going to be going through all these adaptations leading up to the new film. And a week before the currently scheduled release for part two, we're going to look at the trailers and recap what we can expect from the second film. And we'll be back a week after the release to talk through that new film with you too. And then finally, we'll wrap up this season of Dune coverage with the second book, Dune Messiah and the Children of Dune sci-fi adaptation to look ahead at what to expect from Villeneuve's uh, Dune Part 3, assuming it gets the green light. Are you ready to become a Dune expert, Luke, or a Dune
0: spurt, should we say? A Dune spurt? Like I said, I prefer to think of it as becoming a Mentat. If a Mentat, or possibly in your case a Bene Gesserit sister,
1: I mean, I see no gender boundaries becoming a Mentat, but no, I'd rather be a Bene Gesserit. It's like the, for Wheel of Time fans, it's like the Aes (laughs) Sedai.
0: Yeah, they get the cooler outfit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and um, one of the things I'm most looking forward to talking about is uh, yeah, just how much everyone's going to see Dune everywhere after this. Like Star Wars, Wheel of Time, Avatar, etc. I don't think everybody realizes how much stuff we love today has indirectly come from this book.
0: It's everywhere. When, when you actually start to think about it, it's genuinely frightening how influential this book has been. And some people get what Dune is about and take stuff from that. Some people I think have wildly misinterpreted um Dune and what it was what it was really about. I'm looking at you, Star Wars. I'm looking at you, George <laughs> Lucas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just an incredibly influential book. And like you say, when you realise how influential it's been, you see it everywhere.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um Yeah, and and for everyone at home who's following along, um, I definitely obviously recommend reading. Um, I'm going to be doing my reread this time rather quickly myself. Uh, But yeah, it's the best way to get the full picture and immerse yourself in that world. But for those of you who don't have the time or desire, don't worry, we'll be breaking the whole book down, all the major characters, settings, themes, and plot points so that you can understand the bones of the story and feel fully planted in this world. And then we'll tackle the adaptations and look at how well they brought that world and story to life. Um, For those of you who have read or are reading along, my first top three question for you is when you're reading the first book or thinking about the first book, what are your three favorite scenes from this book and why? It can be the most memorable scenes, the scenes that moved you the most or surprised you the most, or just the three book scenes that stick out to you in whatever way. I'll throw up a post on Twitter. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter now and forever. And you can also hop onto the Wool Shift Dust channel of the Lorehounds Discord uh, to share your takes there. Or you can also email them to us at woolshiftdustpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, Luke and I will, of course, share our top threes live in the next episode.
0: If people are interested, by the way, there are, and I know there are several audio versions of it. The one I've been listening to is the one that is available on Audible and it is the one that has that lists Simon Vance as the narrator. Obviously there's a full cast, but it's the one that lists Simon Vance as the main narrator. Okay.
1: And that and you
0: heartily recommend it. I do. It's a really good cool. production.
1: Yeah, and also um looking ahead a few episodes, I'd love to hear from people who have played the Dune video games in the 90s and beyond. So yeah, please tell me what you can remember. I'd especially love some voice memos on this topic. You can email them to me at woolshiftdustpodcasts at gmail.com again, uh, that email address in the notes. And meanwhile, the Silo Book Club is heating up on Patreon. You'll find both part two of my Hugh Howie interview there, as well as the full breakdown of the first book in the Silo series, Wool. So yes, we're giving away all the spoilers about what's going to happen next in the story. With Sam of Silo TV fans' fame this time to protect Luke's show-only innocence, um, <laughs> you can find the book club at patreoncom woolshiftdust. And I want to personally thank the new Silozins who have joined the book club since we aired our Silo Awards episode: Paul Kent, Merciless Fur, Stu, Samarshin, Dan G, Melly B, Cliff J, Tom S, Lisa Fancher, aka Lady Walker fan. Matthew M., James N., Diane D., Laura E., Redhead Shannon, Natalie L., Aurelio, Josh W., Faisal M., Salsa, Kim Shong, aka The Lone Token or That Chick Who Plays Bass, Nano Nate's Great, Chris C., Ranga B., Paige C., and Nancy M. Sam and I love having you all reading, listening, and discussing with us, and there's still time to get in shift feedback before this weekend if you want in on that discussion too. And this podcast was published by the Lorehounds, a podcast community dedicated to deep dives and hot takes just like this. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of the MCU Universe series on the Lorehounds' feet, where we're just wrapping up our coverage of Secret Invasion. The show isn't everything we hoped it would be, but there's a lot to analyze. From the interesting seeds for future storytelling to what exactly went wrong with the realization of it all,
0: I've got to say, as a listener, I think you guys have gone out of your way to be fair and balanced mm-hmm. um, on that show because it would be so, it would be, it would be so easy to rip it limb from limb, and you didn't. I mean, um, the this
1: show has its fans too. There are people who yeah. genuinely enjoyed it, so I mean, we tried to be fair and. If we're gonna we we talked about that there are things it's not a complete dumpster fire. We talked about the things that we liked about it. And if we're going to criticize it, you know, we we try to be fair.
0: And I think you guys did a really good job of trying to highlight both the good and the bad mm-hmm. um in the show. Um I think it would have been really it would have been really easy to just point and laugh and go dumpster fire and yeah in true lawhounds fashion, you guys didn't do that. Um
1: yeah, I mean and we It's a
0: really good podcast, if I do say so myself. Oh, thank you.
1: We we try to pull out the Easter eggs and things you'll still want to know whether or not you enjoyed the show yourself. Because it's still part of uh it's still part of the MCU universe. And I'm not someone who's gonna cry MCU fatigue. I love the
0: MCU. And also if you haven't listened to a podcast he's done so far, Jean has just the best voice for radio yeah. ever. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just true. It's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah.
1: Deep and velvety, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'll also be popping up with Sean uh, and John, who are two different people. Uh, we're gonna one-shot to talk about Good Omens, the uh, second season of the Neil Gaiman adaptation. Um, and there will also be episodes coming out soon from the Laura Hounds uh, Without Me, including a primer for Ahsoka Season 2, continuing their coverage of Foundation, which is perfect for Dune fans, as well as One Piece, the Earthsea series of books, Tolkien, Silmarillion, and a bunch of other stuff. And starting in September, I'll be guesting on their Wheel of Time coverage too. Um, and new to the Laura Hounds Network is the podcast Properly Howard, I mentioned earlier, where Steve and Anthony tackle movies one irreverent take at a time. Their new season starting this month is all about remakes from White Man Can't Jump to The Wicker Man. And yeah, including that episode about the 2021 Dune film that I guessed it on, which will be coming out toward the end of this month if you want a preview on my thoughts on that film. Uh, And Luke, where can people find more of you?
0: So they can find me at at Luke Midup on Twitter. Yes, it is Twitter. It will always be Twitter. And I also do another podcast with a couple of friends from uni. It could be said, all one word. We look at politics, international relations, and sport.
1: And yeah, I'm also on Twitter and other social media as at CB. And you can always find me on the Lorehounds Discord too. Talk to you again in a couple weeks when we'll make sure you know your Mentats from your Spacing Guild, see the subtle difference between the Quizzats Haderach and the Ma'adib, and understand why there's the Bene Gesserit all along. <laughs> <laughs>